All right, I am Haggai Davis III, along with Haggai Davis II, and we'd like to welcome you to Tech Gumbo. Our show is a conversation about the past, present, and future of all things technology that we like to keep topical, interesting, and digestible. We want to thank our sponsor, Cardinal Capital, for making this possible. Cardinal Capital connects businesses to capital. It doesn't matter what business that you are in, Cardinal Capital has the resources all across the United States that are willing to help fund organizations of all sizes, life cycles, categories, and locations. Cardinal Capital works with you to craft the best commercial finance package for you to achieve your business goals. Whether you're looking to refinance current debt because of the new government programs and favorable interest rates, or finance new equipment, or maybe you're trying to acquire another business entirely, Cardinal Capital has the resources to make it happen. When lenders cannot do a loan, they seek out Cardinal Capital to help. The Cardinal Capital guys are easy to work with and fun to be around. Contact them today at 225-308-3700 or send them an email at info at cardinalcap.net and they'll be happy to help you with your commercial finance needs. So each week here on Tech Gumbo, we like to do the question of the week or have a guest. This week, we have a guest with us. So our guest this week is a good friend of mine. I met him back at LSU and now you're both starting our careers. David Sesco, you are now a staff engineer, staff scientist, staff scientist working with a NASA contractor studying Mars. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great so far. It's, it's really an exciting line of work. So, David, how did you become a geologist researching Mars? Well, like Haggai said, I went to LSU. We were in school about the same time. Uh, and I actually, I started off in pre-med biology, and it wasn't until my second year in school after I got an internship working for a geophysical company in, in Houston that I got introduced to the geology department and started taking a few classes and kind of fell in love with the subject. It's not one that high school students are often exposed to. Uh, when it comes to sciences in high school, you usually get like the chemistry, biology, maybe a little physics. They kind of leave out the earth sciences. So I didn't really know what I was getting into. I started taking these classes like this stuff is actually really interesting. And after talking to one of my professors, researching igneous and metamorphic petrology, he did a whole lesson about space exploration and about the geology of other planets. And me being a, a huge science nerd, this, this got me super excited. Uh, I went to his office hours and started asking him a whole bunch of questions. Uh, and it was then that he told me that LSU had just hired a professor to start teaching and researching planetary science, and their specialty was Mars. He graciously introduced me to this professor who became my advisor through the rest of undergrad and into graduate school. And I ended up graduating with ma uh, a Master of Science in Geology with a focus in planetary science. That's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. So you're studying Mars now. Obviously, the question that we have to ask is, is there life on Mars? <laughs> I really love this question. I really love this question. It's it's such it's it's a complicated question. And I'll tell you right off the bat, we don't know yet. But we have finally sent a couple robotic missions that have the specific goal to search for signs of life or uh, or maybe just evidence of past habitable environments that life could have lived in on Mars a few billion years ago. Either way, I think it'd be very, very exciting. 
what are the specific things that you guys are trying to find, which would say, yes, there was life, yes, there is life, or yes, there could have been life. What are those key indicators there? The biggest thing is uh, understanding water. Everywhere we find water on Earth, we find life. Even in the, the driest deserts in the world, if there's even a microscopic amount of water, then microorganisms can live there. Understanding the history of water on Mars, where it was, when it was, and how much of it can lead us in the direction of finding certain other biosignatures. So we find a place with a bunch of water, then we pull out all these other instruments where we can maybe detect methane or carbon dioxide or, you know, calcium deposits. These would all be signs of potentially metabolic processes that life would go through that would indicate to us that either sometime in the past or if we're incredibly lucky and the science is very, very exciting, maybe even uh, microorganisms still existing on the surface of the planet today. That would be completely game changing. It would be. It really it starts asking some philosophical questions at that point. So is there water on Mars? Yes, there is. There is a lot of water on Mars. Over the past 50 years of NASA's science and space exploration, the prevailing thought has gone from, you know, Mars is this dry body just like the moon to every single mission we send, we find new sources of water. And, you know, what we thought the, the ice caps were purely CO2 30 years ago, now we know they're mostly water. We know, or water ice, uh, we know that the atmosphere contains much more water than we initially thought. We know there are massive subsurface deposits, maybe even lakes underneath some of the ice caps towards the poles. We've even in recent years seen flowing water, not just ice, but flowing water down certain slopes on Mars in various canyons and craters. This because the atmospheric pressure is so low, it's not pure water, it's a very salty brine, but it, it goes to show that there are still aqueous processes taking place on the surface. That's incredible. How did the water get there? <laughs> That's another really great question. There used to be a lot more of it. It used to be a stable, ubiquitous substance on the surface of Mars. And we think it probably got there at the very early stages of the solar system when everything was accreting together uh, in these big like balls of molten rock, like how Earth formed, Mars went through similar processes. And then as it cooled, it started to differentiate. And the, the bigger elements, the metals, start concentrating towards the core, the lighter elements and volatiles such as water start congregating on the surface and because mars is so much smaller than earth we didn't get quite as much differentiation that's why mars's surface has so much more iron and that's why it's red because it didn't go to the same level of differentiation as earth did so during these early phases all of this water was forming on the surface there are some researchers who even believe there is enough water to have formed oceans on mars not unlike modern day earth Mars four billion years ago would have looked very similar, at least as far as, you know, water and atmosphere, maybe not vegetation or life. But even today, if you were to access all the sources of water on Mars, pull it out of the atmosphere, melt the ice caps, pull it up from the ground, there would be enough water to cover the entire planet of Mars with about 100 feet of water. Wow. So it, it is significant quantities, and that number could change. It 
the more and more we look at it, the more and more water we're finding. There are members of teams from the European Space Agency that are using ground penetrating radar to map the the subsurface underneath the ice caps. And they really think that they have found these massive lakes, which are being warmed by geothermal processes taking place in the interior of the planet. So do we know what happened to Mars's atmosphere to where they don't have the, the same atmosphere that we have? Yeah, so at one point in time, it was definitely thicker. And over the course of 4 billion years, it has experienced certain processes that have made that atmosphere kind of stripped away and either lost to space through atmospheric escape or frozen and fallen to the ground. A lot of Mars's ancient atmosphere is still there, just too cold to enter a gas phase. A big thing is that Mars being so much smaller than Earth when it cooled, it cooled more completely. And so it doesn't have the same internal dynamo, the same moving of materials around within its interior that Earth does. And so it can't generate a electromagnetic field in the same way that Earth's does. And so over billions of years without this electromagnetic field, you've got solar wind, you've got solar flares, you've got giant asteroid impacts coming in and causing enough force that blow these gases away. And over time, it is just whittled down to being, you know, about half of 1% as thick as Earth's atmosphere. Wow. So if we were to ever send humans to Mars, what would we need to do in order to have it be habitable for humans on Mars? Well, in that, the answer that that question has two different answers. One, if we're looking to keep humans alive in the short term, and then two, if we're trying to keep humans alive on uh, much longer scales. And for a short term mission, we would end up bringing a lot of the resources that we would need to survive and in order for that mission to complete with us from the start. We would bring some instruments that would allow us to access the resources of the planet itself. Like, for instance, the most recent mission that we sent to Mars, the 2020 rover Perseverance, has an instrument on it called MOXIE. And this instrument, MOXIE, pulls the CO2 out of the atmosphere and separates it into carbon atoms and oxygen atoms and produces an, a breathable oxygen that astronauts could use on a mission to Mars in order to survive. It really comes down to how well can we use the resources that are there. If you think about the first European explorers that were coming from Europe to North America, when it came time for them to survive, they didn't bring all of their resources with them. They brought the tools that they needed to access and utilize the resources they found in this new world. And that's exactly what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to find a source of, you know, breathable oxygen. We're going to have to find water, whether, you know, to to drink, to use to grow crops. We can separate it uh, using the Sabatier process into hydrogen oxygen and use it as a rocket fuel. And then we're, you know, we're also going to need to find, you know, the, the material resources, metals, irons, aluminums that will need to build habitats. Ceramics are a big thing when developing all the tools you would need to keep humans alive on a permanent basis. And, and we know Mars has a lot of clays that we could that we could use, we could dig up and then turn into those kind of ceramics. 
So obviously, if you're doing this kind of research, you're working with NASA to some extent as the company you work for is a contractor for NASA. What's been some of your experiences like working with NASA? It's been great. We we provide visible light cameras to a variety of space missions. Our biggest contractor is NASA. So whenever they develop a new mission, whether that's to Mars or to the moon or just to orbit Earth, then they send out searching for con- uh, pe- contractors to provide the services and provide these hardware. And we have to date more cameras in more visible light cameras in space than any other organization. And so we interact with NASA and with JPL on a daily basis, sending back and forth products and deliverables that they use to transmit instructions to these various spacecraft in order to use these instruments to collect data for the scientists to use. So what type of data are the scientists collecting? They're taking these visible pictures what do they do with the pictures? Why are the pictures important? So there's all sorts of, uh, of instruments. The ones that I work most closely with are, are different types of cameras, and each camera has a different purpose. One of the cameras, for instance, it's very low resolution, but it's very wide and can take color images. And so we can see with these images the changing atmosphere. We can see water ice clouds in the sky. We can see the dust storms and plumes and, and, and even tornadoes, dust devils on the surface with this camera. We have another camera that much smaller footprint, but much, much higher resolution. And so you can get uh, these fascinatingly detailed pictures of, of canyons and craters and, and Mars's massive super volcanoes, three times bigger than the biggest mountains here on Earth. And we, we get these pictures back maybe a couple hundred each week. And we put them together and we make mosaics and we we make 3D models. If you have two images of the same feature from two different angles, you can actually combine them into a stereograph and see that feature in 3D. And so when we make these 3D models, we send them off to the scientists and they can, we are talking about the history of water earlier. You can see things like channels that used to be filled with water and you can see in these 3d images how the channels have changed from like one period of geologic time to another period of geologic time and we can track the areas on the planet that we think would be best for more in-depth investigations for both looking for resources to keep humans alive and also what we talked about earlier looking for the habitable environments where we might find signs of life so basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to reconstruct the, a, a wall, basically. Whenever you see you know, a canyon wall and you see all the different grooves on it and you see the different rock formations and that tells us on Earth about what happened to cause the canyon wall on Earth, well, you can't be on Mars. So you have to build these cameras to build these images to reconstruct that digitally. Yes, actually, that's a great way to put it. Having done a little bit of research in, in terrestrial geology, I can I can say from firsthand experience, it's much easier to do geology on Earth. You can go out into the environment and you can, in one day, collect more information about a, a region than all of our instruments on Mars have in the entire history of NASA's exploration of the planet. We're very limited in the data sets that we have access to. So we are trying to combine these cameras in as many ways as possible, like each one a different thread of a tapestry. And if we can tie them together, then we actually have a visualization that scientists can use uh, to start answering some of these questions that we have.
So you said you have a bunch of the cameras that are on the Mars rover Perseverance. Is it y'all's camera that's on Ingenuity, the helicopter? Not on Ingenuity. The billion pixel camera, the mass cam Z, also the hand lens imager to get something really up close. Those and, and then several engineering cameras so that the, the rover can drive and put, maneuver itself around various features. So then you guys are like have the, the big data collecting cameras. You also have more practical cameras so that whenever the rover is trying to navigate and steer, that's, that's also you guys. Yes, yes. And honestly, navigation is just as, if not more important than those science collection cameras. Makes sense. If something, if the rover can't get around and something happens to it, well, then, you know, our big fancy science experiment is suddenly <laughs> going to waste. You have a lander now. <laughs> so what's one of the biggest things that you have, have learned about Mars so far? It's got to be the, the level of change that is happening on a day-to-day -day basis. I have a very different perspective of Mars than I, I did when I was in graduate school. You know, in graduate school, I'm looking at these data sets from maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, and it all feels very static. But when things change and I started getting pictures back from Mars on a daily basis, and I'm looking at the same region, you know, from one month to the next, you start to see a lot of changes on the surface. And you realize that Mars is a much more living, much more dynamic planet than you would have once thought. And one of the the, the projects that we, we do every Mars year, which is about twice as long as an Earth year, two Earth years equals one Mars year, is we completely image and monitor the the polar caps, both in in spring and then summer, just a few months later, that same that summer that follows that spring, and just the changes between a few months of what the ice cap looks like after it has started to defrost and the the ice sublimates off of it and the atmosphere around the poles gets much thicker is very very significant. It's like wow, it it, it almost looks like the planet is breathing when you see the ice extend up and then retreat down over the course of a year. And I think those seeing those changes in as close to real time as you can get has been very exciting. That's super cool. It reminds you a lot of Earth in that way, like seeing those like year-long images of Earth where the ice expands and contracts and you see those seasons happening on Earth. I definitely had that image in my head of Mars being a static planet, but like hearing you talk about it, wow, like it really is changing. It is it's not alive, and, and but it's almost. It certainly feels like it a lot. Also feels like it's got personality. <laughs> so some regions of the planet are much harder to image just because the geography and the topography influences weather. And so we could get regions of the planet where these huge dust storms come in and we just can't even see the surface for months at a time. We have to wait, you know, until things calm down and it'll be still for just a couple days or we got to image this as much as we can. And then uh, the storms come through again, everything gets kicked up into the atmosphere. And then, you know, these regions kind of remain mysterious. David, really want to thank you for spending some time with us here on, on Tech Gumbo. Any, any closing thoughts? Yeah. And I hear a lot about like why why do we study Mars? Like what 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 do we get back? From? And I think the most significant thing is that Mars is a test bed. It's a challenge. It's very hard. Both sending robotic missions, but if if, if we ever want to send human missions, we're going to have to develop some very serious technology to keep these these people alive for their times on the surface. And if we look back into the 60s and the 70s at 
the space race between the U.S. and the USSR and all the technology that came out of those couple decades that we use today on a daily basis. Exploring Mars, sending humans to Mars and eventually colonizing Mars would would recreate that boom to a level that we haven't seen in decades. And I think that's very exciting. Thank you very much, David. Of course. And we want to thank General Informatics for sponsoring our show. General Informatics is an information technology firm with a mission. And that mission is to make our clients even more successful through the best use of technology. Based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, General Informatics is a premier IT managed services provider delivering exceptional managed IT solutions to a diverse base of customers from Texas to the Carolinas. From the beginning, we have maintained our commitment to meeting the growing needs of our clients through the continuous use of innovation. With over 20 years of experience and a team of 120 plus employees, including technicians, engineers, programmers, and designers, GI has evolved to become the leading IT partner of businesses, schools, and government agencies. Our managed services teams can run your digital infrastructure or support your team on an on-demand basis, letting you focus on your business's strength. This has become a proven formula. So proven that 98% of our clients continue to do business with us year after year. Whether you need new IT services, new technology, or you just have a question, visit us on the web at geninf.com. And if you enjoyed our show today, we're here on Talk 107.3 FM every Saturday at 4, and the show will rerun Sunday at 4. If you missed any part of our show, or you would like to hear any of the previous episodes, check out our podcast, which is available on most every platform, including Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podcast Attic, Overcast, Player FM, and more. And when you're there, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified every time a new episode is posted. If you like our show, if you have some suggestions or want to submit a question, let us know by visiting our website, techgumbo.net. Thank you for listening to Tech Gumbo.